I'm going to be in James chapter 4 this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there. Um, and as you're turning there, uh, let me just give us a little bit of background on the book of James. Let me just go ahead and, and set the stage for us today. Um, the book of James is an epistle written by Jesus' half-brother. His name is James. It's written to uh, people in the churches uh, that are in Asia Minor for the most part. But then this letter is you know, copied down by a bunch of different people, and they passed it around. It was just one of those letters that most of the early Christian churches were reading, learning from, from building their theology from. Uh, and if I'm honest, it is a spiritual, it's, it's a very convicting book. It's a very convicting book. James really is, he's very practical, and so that makes it easy to preach to you, but, but the heart of James' words is very, very deep. The heart of James' words is, is very conviction-led, um, and, and reading through this book, studying this book, I've been studying this book pretty specifically for about a year, because I taught through James for, for our youth ministry um, towards the beginning of the year, and then, and then as I was preaching more here, I have just kind of used a lot of that material to preach for you guys, which is nice. It helps me to recycle, and I don't have to do as much work. Just kidding. Did plenty of work on this. The point is this. I've been, I've been studying this book pretty specifically for about a year. And, and let me tell you, it has really changed my perspective. It, is, it has very deeply changed my perspective about how to walk in the, in the Christian life, how to walk in step with the Spirit, as Paul would say. It's changed the way that I view Jesus' words, and, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount, and how the Sermon on the Mount is, is just the standard for how we perceive the world in the Christian life. And so Matthew 5, 6, and 7 really inform the way that James writes here throughout his entire epistle. And so we're in, we're in chapter 4 uh, this week, and, and before we get there, I do want to point out to you, if you picked up sermon notes, if you didn't, you're, it's going to be okay. You're going to make it through. Uh, these graphics will be on the screen, but these sermon notes look a little bit different than they normally do. Normally, we kind of have a point one, two, three, you know, fill in the blank type thing. And uh, this week, we've got three circles. Uh, I think that's what you would call concentric circles, when they're inside of each other. I, I, I don't know about math. I just know the gospel. And so, but, and don't copy my answers either. I'm pretty sure they're right, but, but don't copy these ones down. This is what it'll look like. This diagram is going to help give us a visual this weekend as we walk through what James is talking about, as we, as we come to more of a deeper understanding of some of the wars that we fight in our life. I've named this sermon, The War Within You, The War Within Each of Us. There, there are battles that we fight every single day. There, they would not surprise you for me to say that we live in a time and in a day of conflict. And these, uh, this diagram is going to help us to give a visual to how some of these battles work, some, how some of these wars wage in our lives, uh, and it'll just help us help guide us as we go. If you're with me, say, I am. I am. All right, great. Uh, James chapter 4 uh, addresses conflict. He talks about wars and fights and quarrels. And, and like I said a moment ago, it would not be a surprise for me to, to say to you that we live in a time and a day of conflict. And no one really teaches us. No one really teaches us how to fight with others. I grew up with an older brother. His name is Colin. Uh, Colin is actually a youth pastor in Texas. We both ended up being youth pastors, which is crazy to me, but it's really cool. Um, uh, and we, we grew up fighting a lot, okay? Not, not physically. He, he was a football player, and he's much bigger than I am. And so, so for me, I really had to play this right because I couldn't best him physically. So I had to use my words and be very destructive and all these terrible things. The point is this. No one taught us how to fight, okay? No one taught us how to fight over the last piece of pie at dinner. No one taught us to fight over who was going to ride in the front seat of the car. No one t taught us to fight over the radio. No one taught us to be in conflict with one another. No one taught us these things. We just simply had a natural, we just knew how to do it. It's just part of the nature of humanity. We just knew, well, you're the older brother and I'm the younger brother, so we, we should be enemies, right? We should be fighting each other. That's the way of the world. No one taught us this. It is just simply 
part of our human nature, and all of us walk through conflict every single day. And it has been that way. We, we have lived in conflict, lived at war with one another and within ourselves since page three of the Bible, since, since Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the knowledge, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were a lot of of thes in that sentence right there. When they took of that fruit and they seized autonomy of control over their own lives and they seized autonomy from the Lord, since then, we've been on a path of conflict. Since then, we have been on a path where, where we just, we don't really see eye to eye with each other. We can't be fully honest or fully trustworthy of one another. And that has been the way of humanity since Genesis chapter three. And, and this is seen all throughout history. There's... Um, there was a monastic movement called, they called themselves the Desert Fathers um, in like the early 2 and 300, 400 AD era. And, and a lot of these Christian monks like went into the Egyptian desert and they had a lot of really interesting things to say. And, and their whole movement uh, was all about um, talking about society and culture and, and Christianity, how it's supposed to fit into that. And then they kind of pulled themselves out of culture and society in many ways, and they lived in what they would call cells out in the desert, and they wrote about Christianity. Uh, and one of, these, one of these men, his name was Abba Anthony. So Father Anthony was his name, Abba Anthony. And this is what he has to say about conflict. He says this, and this is in like early, late 200s, early 300s AD. So long, long time ago from us. And he says, a time is coming. When men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you are mad because you are not like us. And that sound, that's a very familiar melody to our day. That is a familiar sound to our day, where we find something that we're passionate, we believe deeply about, and we set ourselves in this root, in this spot, and we say, you're weird and wrong because you don't agree fully with me, Okay. Christians do this. Uh, everybody does this. Everybody has something that we, that we stick to like this, and we look at others and we say, well, no, you're weird because you don't have the experience that I do. Okay, that's simply just a source of conflict. This is not something that we had to be taught, but, but it is something that we face every single day. It's simply conflict and war among us. And this natural bent of humanity towards conflict, ending in, in destructive tendencies, even in violence, this is exactly what James is going to address here in chapter four of his letter. So let me pray for us this weekend and then I'll read James chapter four. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we are so humbled by your word. We simply ask for eyes to see what you're doing here, ears to hear what you're doing here, and a heart to receive your message today that we would not just hear with empty, empty ears, but Lord, that we, would, that we would be changed by your word, that we would be inspired by your word. Jesus, we love you, we trust you, it is in your name we pray, amen. All right, James chapter four, verses one through six, let me read it for us today. James says this, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war and you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So James is pointing out here, there's conflict among us, and, and it's not God's fault. It's not everybody else's fault. 
Conflict is something that happens within the human heart. It happens within the human heart. And there's been this theme throughout the entire book of James, attention throughout the entire letter, that, that if you've heard me teach through the book of James, if you've heard any of the sermons before this, I, I've mentioned it probably in every single one, is that there's this tension that James creates throughout the book, uh, throughout his letter, uh, talking about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the flesh, right? And there's this tension between those two things. And we live, Christians live in that tension, knowing that we have sinful desire, we have a sinful nature, but we're aware of Jesus' righteousness and what his calling is in our lives. And this thought process, this, this tension comes to a head right here in chapter four where, where James really gives language to it. And he says that it is a war. It is a war that we fight deciding between these two kingdoms. And this war is not just fought outside of the church doors. It's not just fought in culture. It's not about the politics of our day. It's like I said a moment ago, it is fought within our hearts. It's fought within our hearts, our hearts the moment we ask the question, are we going to be the new humanity made in Jesus' image? If, if we truly believe in and follow Jesus, are we going to model our lives that way or will, will those be empty words? Are we going to become the new humanity that's created in Jesus' image and not in the image of the world, in the image of culture? And that is the war that we're constantly stuck in. And this war is fought at three different levels, which is where this diagram will now come in handy, I promise. I, I, I told you, we're going to get there. It's taken this long, but we've gotten there. Uh, this war uh, is fought at three different levels. And there are three distinct conflicts that we're, that we're entangled in uh, that are all related to one another. And so the first one, and the outermost layer of these circles, the outermost layer, is that we are at war with each other. We are at war with others. And James has already mentioned a lot of these battles uh, in his letter. I've already mentioned quite a few of them today. Uh, my brother would belong in the outer circle because I am at war with him constantly. Uh, James has mentioned a lot of these battles battles in his letter. He's talked about battles between the rich and poor, uh, wars done in the name of favoritism. Uh, he's talked about the tongue and how we're, we have destructive tongues and destructive mouths and, and how our, out of our mouths come both blessing and cursing and, and we have these destructive tendencies. And so he's talked about many of these battles. And for us, there, there, are, there are plenty more examples. I don't think I need to talk about social media. I don't think I need to talk about politics for us to know we're at battle with one another. And not just like actively disagreeing and we just don't like what they think or say. No, there are people actively doing battle every single day. And it's exactly what Abba Anthony talked about just a few moments ago when he was like, when he, when he talked about people, you know, they, they decide something and they say, everybody else is crazy for not deciding the way that we have decided. And people do the same thing today. We have the same tendencies today and we are actively doing battle with one another. We also need to remember one thing here, here in chapter 4 of James. James is writing to church people. Okay? He's writing to churches. And so when he talks about these wars and, and fights among us, he's talking about wars, fights, and disagreements among Christian people. He's talking about these wars and fights amongst believers as well. And see, uh, the church all throughout the New Testament is talked about with reference to a body. That the church is a body of believers. The church, the church is a body. It is, it is Jesus' bride. It, it has all of these allusions towards a body. And what would we call a body that continuously attacks itself? We would say that it has an autoimmune disorder, uh, that it has a problem, right? And the church of our day, the church uh, of Abba Anthony's day, the church of James's day, has an autoimmune disorder. It is the body constantly attacking itself when it should be un unified by one spirit. And see, see we do the kingdom of God, a great disservice, 
a great disservice when we constantly attack and ridicule one another. When, when God's saints do battle against one another, we cannot reach the world. When God's saints do battle against one another, we, we become an awful example of what Christ's love really is to those who do not know Christ's love. And so these wars, fights, and quarrels are fought not just, not just out in culture, not just in the world, but, but they're fought here internally amongst the body of the church as well. And the world watches this and says, behold how the Christians hate one another. Behold the people of the book who refuse to follow it. And so James, here in this passage, is calling us back to the original calling of God. Simply follow what Jesus has commanded us to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love God. He is linking these things directly back to Jesus' teaching. And as long as the Christians, the saints, remain at war with one another, we lack the ability to reach those who are lost. And we might ask in this moment, how, how can people that are united by the Spirit of God um, be in conflict so deeply with one another? Maybe it makes sense that if, that if people have a very different worldview, maybe they're a part of different religions, all of those things, it makes sense that they'd be in conflict. They believe different things about the world. But why would a body of believers that's supposed to be unified by a book and by a God and His Spirit, how can they be at conflict with one another? And that's because of the second layer of our diagram, the second uh, battle and the fight that we're constantly entangled in is that we are at war with ourselves. Our passions do battle within us. James chapter 4, verse 1, uh, James asks two questions, and he says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? And don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Excuse me, I'm very dry. Uh, here in chapter, one, or chapter 4, verse 1, I love it when biblical authors ask a question, but they're not asking a question, they're making a statement. So, so the second question that James asks, and he says, don't they come from the passions that wage war within you? He's not asking, do your passions cause fights? He's, he's telling the people, the passions that are waging war within you are causing the dissent, the fights, the quarrels amongst you. Amongst you. And so our passions wage war within us, and the war within ourselves fuels the war among our brothers and sisters. And this battle we fight is exactly that tension that, are, that I have already mentioned, is this tension between the kingdom of flesh and the kingdom of, of God. The, this, this constant decision-making between which kingdom will we participate in, which teaching will we submit to, which culture will we allow to mold us, which one will we choose? Which one will we be a part of? And, and this is a constant fight that is within us because our, our natural desire is to say, no, I want to live for me. <laughs> I want to live for my agenda. I want to live for my goals, my passions, my desires. And yet we, we are aware of this, of this righteousness. That means putting aside our own wants, desires, and putting others ahead of us the way that Jesus did, the way that Jesus modeled for us. And, and there comes a, a point in our lives where where we're no longer ignorant of that battle. We're no longer ignorant of that tension. And it might be much easier if, if you've been walking with the Lord long, if you've been walking with the Lord for, for any amount of time, you understand that maybe it would be easier to just be ignorant. Maybe it would just be easier to not know about the battle going on between, in, in ourselves between this kingdom of flesh and the kingdom of God. Maybe it would be easier if I just didn't know that I was supposed to love other people and I could just pursue my own wants, loves, desires, all of these things. It, it would be easier if I could simply have my own agenda, my own desire, my own passions and not worry about anybody else. And that ignorance, we wouldn't have to love other people. We wouldn't have to. There comes a point in our life and if you're sitting in the room today, maybe now is that point in your life 
We're no longer ignorant. We cannot be ignorant uh, of this war that is waged within us. Uh, Paul has a lot to say about uh, this war that's within us, this war between our, our selfish and sinful passions and desires and, and pursuing the righteousness of Jesus. He's very familiar with that fight, and he writes about it <clears throat> Excuse me, in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24. Now, before I read this to you, um, it takes a moment to understand what he's saying here because of the way that he says it. Okay, so, so write this scripture down and, and go read it as well after I'm done reading it. I'm going to try to explain it as we go. You'll understand once you hear it. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24 say this, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So, no, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? So you understand what, what I'm saying when I say that's difficult to read. Uh, there's a lot of want to do, to do, to do, what not to do, and what to do, and all the good that I should be doing. There's a lot of those phrases here in this passage. <clears throat> and basically what what Paul is trying to point out is that there is an inward struggle. There's an inward struggle that he knows. He knows that he desires to be like Christ. He knows that he desires to, to see that righteousness displayed in his life, to love others, to love others the way that God has called us to love others. But there's this other side of selfishness. There's this side of sin that's within us that, that we cannot get rid of. There's no getting rid of it. And that is simply the tension that Christians live in today. It's not an easy lifestyle. It's, it's not an easy way to walk in this world and this reality that we have. It's not an easy way to do that. We constantly live at war with ourselves. But this division within us is caused by an even deeper issue. And this, we have finally made it to the middle circle of our concentric circles this week, and is that we are at war with God. We're at war with God, and the root of every war is rebellion against God and his creation. In James chapter 4, verse 4, he says it this way, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? See, our rebellion, our rebellion is choosing the world. It's choosing flesh and sin. And like I mentioned earlier, it has been that way since page three of your Bibles. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel struggles and fights back and forth with this, the idea of choosing the world or choosing their father, choosing to submit to culture instead of submitting to God. They fight back and forth constantly. And this fighting back and forth is compared with adultery all throughout the Old Testament. It's compared with adultery to unfaithfulness. There's this prophet named Hosea, and his charge by God is to marry a, a woman who is unfaithful to him, to, to marry a prostitute. And, and this, he, he, he calls 
Hosea to do this, and it is simply a picture of the Father and his people. He allows Hosea to live in this reality to more deeply understand what God's relationship has been with humanity. A humanity that he has loved, that he has cherished, that he has provided for, and yet they are unfaithful to him. They, they chase the desires of their heart instead of the Father. And the church of today is an unfaithful bride in the same way. An unfaithful bride. Because we know, we know the righteousness of Christ. We, we know what is good for us to pursue. We know what is fulfilling for our lives to pursue. And yet, like Paul says, we know the good and we have no power to do it. We have no power to do it. Our rebellion is the choice to take control and power over our own lives for ourselves, which is exactly the story of Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They seize autonomy for their lives. They seize control. They seize power. They say, we want to be in control of our lives. You and I do the same thing every day. We do the same thing. We seize control. We take autonomy. And so our war with God is fueled by a rebellion that causes the division and war within ourselves, which will always lead to conflict with those around us. And so that will complete all three of your circles. So, so we're at war with each other. We're at war with ourselves. We're at war with God because of the rebellion that we have with God, which causes division within ourselves, which causes conflict with those around us. Now, using this diagram, if you guys want to just leave it up for a couple more seconds here, um, using this diagram, uh, we have painted a very ugly picture of humanity. We've painted a, a really not pretty picture of, of our reality as people. And I do believe that this is a one-size-fits-all diagram. This diagram applies to me. It applies to each of you. It applies to anybody who's not here today. Everyone who has lived, will live, or is living. It is a one-size-fits-all. We will all face these things. We will all face rebellion with God, division in ourselves, and conflict with the world around us. And it's not a pretty sight. It's not a pretty sight. Violence, wars, destruction. When this is our identity, humanity is ugly. It's not a beautiful creation. James paints this picture for us. But then in verse 6, he shares an even deeper truth. Let me read it to you. Verse 6 of chapter 4. But he gives greater grace. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus' deep desire, deep desire is to give you grace. And maybe you need to write that uh, over the top of the circles here. Jesus' deep, deep desire is to give grace you and us, grace, to cover up the ugliness of our lives. Jesus desires to come to the mud, the dirt, the grossness of the, of the soil that is our life, to put his hands into that soil, to get dirty and muddy, and to plant a garden. And he invites us to be his partners, to plant alongside him, to keep in step with the Spirit, that we might plant a garden out of the ugliness of our life, and yet create love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus himself, his grace is transformative. And, and when he offers us that greater grace, this picture of humanity no longer defines us. This is no longer our story. 
But Jesus' grace covers it over. And since the beginning, since the beginning, God blesses and loves his children. And that is our identity. When we accept the grace and the transformation of Jesus Christ, that is what becomes our identity. Not, not the wars and the conflicts that we fight, but as children of the king. Amen. That is our identity when Jesus' grace, Jesus' grace changes us. No matter how evil the picture becomes of humanity throughout history, we will always be his creation, shaped by him in the womb and offered forgiveness by the blood of his son. That will always be, that will always be a deeper truth. That will always be a deeper truth. I don't know what you're walking in here with today, but that is the deepest truth about your life. That Jesus knows you, loves you, formed you, and has given himself for you so that we might be known and know him. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have conflict. Jesus' grace uh, transforms us and becomes our identity, but it doesn't mean that we're, we, we aren't, we, it doesn't mean that we no longer have a sinful side of ourselves. That doesn't mean we're no longer in rebellion to God. We still, we still make wrong decisions. We still have sin in our hearts and our minds. That doesn't mean that we're not divided in ourselves. It doesn't mean we're not at conflict with one another, but, but knowing Jesus' grace and his transforming power means that we don't fight these battles the same way that the world would. The way the world would fight is reflected uh, in verses 1, 2, and 3, that, 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 the, that we would desire and not have, that we would murder and covet and never obtain, that we would fight, we would wage war, that we would ask and pray to God with our own selfish ambitions and motives. And if we were to fight all of these fights the way that the world would, that's how we would do it. We would look for only our own agenda. We would murder. We would covet. We would, we would destroy others to gain for ourselves. That's how we would fight these fights. But, but James has a very different picture. A very different picture. In fact, Jesus has a very different picture for how we fight these battles. So let me read James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. It says this, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you, and he will exalt you. There's a way to fight these wars within us, and it's by coming into deeper relationship with Christ. We come near to him, we draw near to him, and he draws near to us. All war is started in the hearts of people. But when we change our hearts, we begin to fight these wars differently. And, and it's interesting, um, the way the world would fight is by murdering and coveting and asking with selfish ambition. But, but James says the way to fight these fights is actually the opposite. It's to wave the white flag. It's to actually surrender. It's to give up. This is the way that Jesus fights his fights is by submitting the, his will to the Father's will. Unconditional surrender is the only way to complete victory. And submission is an act of the will. It is saying, God, your will be done and not my own. Israel in the Old Testament is an ensemble of characters and generations crying out, my will, my will, my will, my will be done. And Jesus comes into the picture to change that story and to change that narrative. And what does he do? He doesn't say, my will be done. No, he says, Lord, your will be done. And just imagine that for a moment, that Jesus' will is done by giving it up. It is the opposite. 
It is the opposite of what we would imagine when we say that we're going to fight our battles with the Lord's name. I'm going to fight this battle in Jesus' name. Jesus doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your power. You need his. He, he does not need more people with larger muscles and swords. He needs people who will submit to his will, who will love others regardless of the situation. Our solution to the wars raging around us and within us is to humble ourselves and to draw near to God. It is to surrender. We don't fight fire with fire. We don't fight culture the way others fight culture. We fight it the way that God mandates us fight. And it's by giving up our will, by following him deeper. We fight our fights by drawing near to God. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to draw near to God? And James has a few thoughts on this. He talks about repentance and turning our hearts towards the Lord. Um, but the, I'll end with this simple idea is that nearness to God is likeness to God. Nearness to God is likeness to God. There's a theologian named A.W. Tozer who, who, who kind of talks about this, and, and he's the one who comes up with this phrase. But that's the idea. If we fight our battles by being near to God, then nearness to God is likeness to God. So let me, let me illustrate this a little bit for you, because the more alike we are to God, the nearer we are to him, okay? It's not, being near to God isn't really about physical closeness, okay? So, so I have a dog, and her name is Reba, and Reba is a really sweet dog, um, except she's really annoying when we're on the couch, okay? She does this really terrible thing where she doesn't cuddle with you, but she'll, like, take her, her front paws and, like, stand on you and put all of her weight on you. I don't know, and she'll just stand like that. I don't know why she does it, but that's, like, what, what is comfortable for her, and that's fine. And so, the point is this, it, my dog could be standing on me on the couch, okay, and Grace, my wife, could be in the kitchen, she could be somewhere far away, but I am nearer to Grace than I am to my dog because I have much more in common with Grace. There are only two things I have in common with my dog, that is that we both love Grace and we both love the couch. Those are the only two things, and right there is like where it ends, and so my dog and I are not very close. We don't have that much in common, whereas for Grace and I, we, we have all things in common. We pursue to have things in common. And it's the same way with God. It's the same way with God that, that if we are near to him, it is because we are alike to him. Now imagine this concept that nearness is likeness. Imagine this with the language of scripture, that we are made in God's image, that we are already made in his likeness, that we are more than capable of being close and near to him because he has designed us to be. He has designed us to be near and to be close to him. So nearness to God is not, is not finding some new spirituality. It's not discovering new frontiers of spirituality. It's returning to our first purpose, to know and be known by God. And that is how we fight our battles, is by being near to him. So let me encourage you with that this weekend. Nearness to God is likeness to him. If you want to fight battles in your life, submit to the Lord in all that you do and become nearer to him. His spirit empowers us to do this, to become ever nearer to himself, to his own heart. I'll have you guys bow your heads this week. I'm gonna pray for us in this moment and then after I pray, we'll respond and we'll have our prayer partners move to the front. If you have, if you have a need for prayer in any area of your life, this would just be a moment for you to respond. And so after I pray, we'll, we'll start with that. So let me pray for us this weekend. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for providing in us a spirit of humility that we might receive these things, Lord. 
we have a spirit within us. We, we, we have this natural desire within us that, that wants to do good, but is held back by the sinful desire we also have. Lord, we know that there is good for us to do that we have no power to do. And so, Lord, I just simply pray for your spirit to be within us, to empower us, to give us strength, encourage us, give us the words we need to simply do your will this week. We submit to you. We submit to that. We submit to your will. Lord, your will be done, not ours. Your will be done, not ours. Remind us of that this week. Lord, may we walk and step with your spirit. Jesus, it is in your holy, precious, magnificent, and wonderful name we pray. Amen.